The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Be lifted high. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we are in the book of Revelation, book of Revelation, and uh, you have your pew Bible or a blue pew Bible. That is the very last book of the Bible, one many people are familiar with and one many uh, often go to as a way of knowing about what we believe. And we are on page 1028 at the very back. Uh, uh, Page numbers are there. Chapter 2 today, and we are starting what is going to be really the, the summer months, main summer months, June and July. We're going to be going through the seven churches of the letters that Jesus gives to these churches in chapters 2 and chapter 3. And so these are, it kind of seems like a diversion because here we are, we think Revelation's all about the end of the world and in a sense it is, but really it's, it's a letter. It's a pastoral letter by God through the Spirit, speaking through John to speak truth to churches. And everything he's writing to, if you remember, is about this phrase, and I love Brother Ben's, I, I, I smile every time I see this, this cool graphic he made, God wins. That's it. That's the boil down point of the whole book. God's got it, God wins. But now he's going to speak to the churches. And wouldn't it be nice if God could write you a letter today and you could get it in the mail, snail mail as it were, and you could go through and get a personalized letter about how you are doing spiritually from God himself. That might cause many of you to go to North Kansas City ER with a heart attack. But at the same time, you know that if you got such a letter, wouldn't it be so encouraging? And that's what he's going to do. He's going to open this letter by writing it to these churches. He's going to praise them for what they're doing well. He's going to challenge them for what they need challenging in. And he's going to reaffirm to them what they are doing well and to continue on in it. And so chapter 2 through chapter 3 is where we're going to be. The only week we anticipate not studying a church between now and the end of July is on, I think it's July 2nd, uh, July 4th weekend, basically. We'll have kind of a timeout from Revelation. But if you didn't, were not here last week or you've not picked one up, the study guides are in the back. Please do that, and we pray you do so to God's glory. But that's what it's all about. God is writing letters to these churches, and as he does so, he's reminding them about who they are. But if you were in Sunday school this morning, you remember this verse from Jeremiah 2, 2, because the nation of Israel was going through the same thing most of these churches were. They were hot for God, cold for God, lukewarm for God, and they didn't even acknowledge God. And in Jeremiah 2.2, I know it's hard to see, but Jeremiah was told to go and proclaim this message. He said, and God speaks, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in a land that was not sown. And so too, Ephesus was a church that we'll look at today that did all the right things, but the bottom line was their heart was not in it. Now that never happens in your marriage, does it? That never happens at your job. That never happens when you mow the lawn for the millionth time because you just love mowing the lawn for the millionth time, don't you? Your heart can be far from the very thing that you are passionate about. Even your most fun hobby can feel like a drudgery if you are not truly focused and intent on what you're doing. So this morning, I want you to know, and the big idea is simply this, and if you're visiting or, or if you've forgotten in a while, the big idea is just a summary of the whole sermon is that God honors broken hearts 
as Pastor Nelson just read from Psalm 51 and David and Bathsheba, but he does not honor cold hearts. Now that sounds funny. We're not talking physically, we're talking spiritually. But if sin could destroy Samson, the strongest man, if sin could destroy Solomon, the wisest man, and David, the man after God's own heart, we must be careful that we cannot outsmart, outpower, or overcome any sin or any cold heart. That's why Jesus reminded us, didn't he, that he said, watch and pray for temptation will not enter into temptation. So this morning, four things, a Baptist sermon with four points, that means you're going to be here an extra hour, right? And so that's a joke. But four things that he tells this church at Ephesus and things that we need to know today, this real church that was in modern day Turkey some 2,000 years ago, four ways the risen Jesus advises this church. And again, these are churches he's going to give a commendation or praise to. He's going to criticize them. He's going to give them a word of challenge. He's going to give them a word of warning. He's going to give them a promise. He's going to give them all these things. And as you see up here on this map, he's going to start here at number one. And John is on that little island. It's really hard to see, but that little black dot is the island of Patmos, about 50 miles from the island or from the port city of Ephesus, which is still there, by the way. And he's going to make his way up almost in a circle from one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, back to the port city. It's like a postal route. If he, John was the original carrier, if you will, of the, the mail, rain, shine, hell, or high water, he did it, and he got it out there. And so this morning, that's what I want you to see. I don't want you to check out and say, that was a message for them back then. If that's true, then just chuck the Bible, because this was written 2,000 years ago. This has application to your life every minute of every day, and that's what we believe. So the first point I want you to see, and Amy, if you'll keep that up, please, is that the risen Jesus counsels the heartless church. The risen Jesus counsels the heartless church. And so as he goes through... And you look at these cities and you look at everything about them. He's going to challenge the heartless church or the loveless church. But you see in verse 1, and uh, we won't have you stand to read. We're just going to read down through it today. If you look at Revelation 2.1, if you have your Bible, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven lampstands. Stop right there. I want you to focus on that word angel. Because you know that every pastor is an angel. I mean, I mean, pastors are angels, right? Just ask their wives and their children. And they, surely that's what this was. Well, who was this? There are four options here. If you're taking notes, you'll, you'll have these on your bulletin. Well, was it a pastor? Was this angel a pastor? Some people argue that, the senior pastor. Well, that's wrong for several reasons. One, because the Bible always speaks of leadership amongst the pastors in the plural. There's never just one pastor. There's always multiple pastors, or to put it in another vernacular, a plurality of elder pastors. And also, an angel is not an office. An angel is a spiritual being. A pastor is an, it's a pastoral office. And every time that Revelation and the New Testament uses the word angel, it never refers to an office. And finally, we know that the senior pastor was not in mind because in Acts 20, and you can look this up later, as Paul left the city of Ephesus... He wrote and, and said to the elders, plural, there's going to be people that come among you and take down your church. So this is probably the angel here is not a senior pastor. And for your sake, that's a good thing, right? Because I'm not your angel. I'll just tell you that right now. So what could it be? Secondly, it could be that this angel refers to a prophet or a designated group church rep, kind of the spokesperson for the church. 
Some argue that perhaps that as Jesus is talking to this church, that he designated one or two people to be the, the person to speak for them. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Or in the words of Nelson last week, I don't know. But number three, and these are probably the stronger cases. Perhaps this means is that number three, this was directed to churches, plural. The letters are directed to the churches, plural, the whole church. Perhaps the angel of the church refers to the whole church. And that makes sense, right? He's writing a letter. It's not just to one person. It's to a group of people. So he gives it to the whole church. Maybe, maybe not. Some of you have heard this last theory, that the angel is actually a guardian angel of the church of Ephesus. So does Tower View Baptist have a guardian angel? I don't know. That's why there are question marks after all of these. I'm going to take a time out and remind us about our study of Revelation. It would be so tempting, wouldn't it, just to plant our flag and say, it's the whole church, it's a pastor, it's an angel, and, and that's the way it is. It is okay to say those famous words. Nelson, can I say them again? I don't know. Because guess what? That word isn't the point. The point is, is that he's writing to them and he wants them to listen to what he has to say. The that is the bottom line. So this church at Ephesus, where in the world is Ephesus? We saw it's on a port city, but let me give you a little bit about it. This big temple that you'll see on the screen right here is the temple of Diana or Artemis. It was a temple that was adopted as the Romans took over uh, the Persian and Phoenician uh, worship, and they basically melded it into one. This was one of the seven wonders of the world, like the Babylon Gardens and the, and the pyramids and all these things. But here at Ephesus, they had this big, beautiful temple that lasted until about 500 A.D. And this Ephesus was a very famous city because it was a free city. That phrase, what happens in... Stays in Vegas, probably got its origins. What happens in Ephesus stays in Ephesus because it was one of the free cities of the known world at the time. The Romans did not have a guard there. They had guards around there, but they let, basically let Ephesus do its thing. And there, because there was not much uh, uh, policing, you got every type of person coming in. The rich, the powerful would hide their money in this temple. The criminals would hide themselves in the temple and other places. It was just a city of lawlessness, but in the lawlessness, there was honor among thieves, if you will. And in Acts 18, we know that uh, Aquila and Priscilla go and share the gospel there. And eventually, Paul joins them, and they find a guy named Apollos. You can read about this in Acts 18 and 19. And as they get there, Apollos is preaching the gospel of John the Baptist, come and repent and be baptized. And then he gets saved. And after about three years, we hear this great episode where Paul is preaching the gospel and all these scrolls that they read in the temple to the false god Artemis or Diana start to get thrown on a pile. And do you remember what happens to them? They light them up. And in today's money, it would be about $6 million of books that these people who had just come to Jesus threw away. The gospel was running rampant in a awesome way in the city of Ephesus. God was doing work in a little church that was spreading outward. But you also have to know that during that time, that this temple, I know we have young years in here, but this temple was used for extramarital purposes. Do you understand what I'm saying? Male, gender to gender, gender the opposite gender. It didn't matter. It was a terrible, wicked place. But there was a church who was faithful. Apollos, Aquila, Priscilla, Paul, Tychius, Timothy, 
And eventually, we believe, John was a pastor of this church. What a, what a line of pastors could you get? That's like having, in, 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 in Bot Radio Network, that's like having Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, David Jeremiah, uh, Tony Evans, I mean, Billy Graham, all back to back to back to back to back to back. But this church was taught well, and Jesus is going to praise them for it, but their hearts were away from it. And church, I just want to say a word to us before we move on. I know we've gone through like two words in seven verses. We're getting there. But if they could succeed in a country and a place that was absolutely pagan to the core, you better believe that the gospel can grow wherever God puts you as a Christian, in a family, in a church, or a culture that does not believe anything we believe. The gates of hell will not have it. They didn't have free speech. They didn't have a constitutional amendment. They didn't have what we as Baptists uphold uh, well, religious liberty. They simply had a gospel and a mighty God. So that is what you see there. Now, you notice there in verse 1, if you have your Bible still, he says that Christ holds the seven churches. He holds the seven, or excuse me, holds the seven stars. And in Revelation 1.16, Pastor Nelson preached last week. He, he read this to us. It, and if you want to look back there in chapter 1, he says, In his right hand were the seven stars. And down in verse 20, Jesus explained that to John. He said, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, or the angels, who are those? I don't know, of the seven churches and the seven lampstands of the seven churches. Confused yet? The point is, is that these seven churches are held by Jesus. Isn't it no, great to know that you are held by God himself? Isn't it great to know if your church is following what God has, that he holds you? Christian, can I remind you in John 10, 27, that Jesus says that no one can snatch you out of his hands because you're secure in him, can never lose your salvation. And that right hand is accountability. And this reminds us of something. Members, this is a word for you to be careful how you treat your pastors. Why? Because Jesus holds the seven stars which are in his right hand, which are the seven churches. Pastors, Retired pastors, pastors who aren't pastoring right now in the official sense, we must be careful how we treat our members. Why? Because Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand. How we treat one another shows how we treat the one who holds it all together. And he says he holds us, and he counsels his heartless church to hang on to this because he's there. But he also gives them a word. He says, members be careful, pastors be careful. But he also goes on to say that he's the one, in verse 1, who walks among the golden lampstands. He walks among the golden lampstands. That will be on your screen as well. He walks among the golden lampstands. Notice that Christ is not passive here. He's not just sitting on a stool. That's why, actually, I put this up here. He's not just sitting on a stool observing. He's not just sitting on his throne. When we see Christ in the New Testament, he's either raised up on his throne in concern for Stephen, or he's walking around the churches inspecting. And we'll get to that more in a minute. But I want you to know that in the midst of the lampstands, he is walking. And what is he doing? Well, it says he's walking in the midst of them, and they're, and they're golden lampstands, a symbol of purity. You know, church growth experts today will tell us that we need to ask people what they want to see in a church. But you don't see that here at all. In fact, we're not going door to door saying, if we did this at church, would you come? That's not what's happening here. In verse 1, you see it's Christ who's walking around. And the reason that is important is because we need to ask the question, what would God want to see in a church? And Amy, you may put that next section up if you will. Is what we are doing in our church glorifying to God and at home? Because you know what? 
The opinions of people are going to change and flow and ebb and grow in different ways. But God's opinion of what he expects of us as a church and his people is always the same. And he does it with love and care. And what does Christ see? What does he see in our worship services, in our choirs, in our boardrooms, in our parking lots? We can fool him, but verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, I know. I know. He sees it all. He's walking amongst his churches, and he knows what's going in them. And can I be honest with you? Even in our Southern Baptist Convention, there are some rotten apples. Racism, abuse, neglect, spiritual lackadaisicalness. He knows. May we seek to honor God in all that we are as a church. And that's what he counsels this heartless church to do. You can fool some people all the time. You can fool all people sometime. But you can't fool Christ anytime. And that's what we know. He sees the good and the bad. And you say, Darren, is he just like Santa Claus? He's just out there making a list, checking it twice, going to find out. No. We'll get there in a minute. But you need to know that if Christ is in a church, he's there in love and grace, pointing that church back to his Father and the Spirit and himself, the Blessed Trinity. That's, ver- that's number one. He counsels the heartless church. Let's look at number two. He counsels here, the risen Jesus does, uh, the heartless church, but the risen Jesus also commends or praises the heartless church. That's in verses 2 and 3. And he says, I know in verse 2 your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. And, and, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. He says, I know you're enduring patiently, verse 3, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He's commending them. He's praising them. He's encouraging them. This letter begins with compliments and not criticism. Jesus has more positive things to say about this church than the other two churches of the seven. He does not say any bad things against Smyrna and Philadelphia. He heaps on the praises of Ephesus. They're in that wicked city of Diana and everything else. But notice the first thing he does in verse 2. He commends sacrificial deeds, or he praises sacrificial deeds. And what he's saying here is that this church was spiritually active. They were vibrant. They were uh, fit and active. They were moving about. They were going through. And it's a reminder to us that no church succeeds in spare time or with pocket change or nominal commitment. A healthy church is a working church. Now, that can be a bad side, and we'll get to that in a minute. But he says that word toil. They are literally working for the gospel and for God to the work and point of exhaustion. They have wore themselves out doing godly things. Most churches, what's that old saying that uh, 20% of the people do 80% of the work? Well, it seems that this church, everybody was on board. Everybody was part of it. Everyone wanted to be it because a healthy church is a working church. And he says there in verse 2, he says, you have patiently endured Pastor Nelson shared last week that the emperor Domitian in the late, uh, late first century of Rome was already sending lions and, 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 and persecution parties to these churches to kill the Christians. And in doing so, many had lost heart. But by his grace, this church strove to be what Ephesians 2.10 says and what Paul wrote to them. He said, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he ordained beforehand for his good. So he says, look, keep doing the things for me. Keep, keep doing the things for Christ. And he commends that. He praises that. But notice secondly there what he did in verse 2. He also praised them for their sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. He says in verse 2, 
He says, I know your works, your toil, your endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. Jesus praises here sound doctrine. What is doctrine? It's teaching. Every family has a doctrine. You have things you believe, morals you hold, and things you hang tight to, tightly to. Doctrine is what we believe and what we don't believe. It's why we tell you here to know more about what you believe than what you don't believe, because the more you know this, the counterfeits will come out. But he commends them. They, 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 they can decipher between true and false prophets and truth and error. They don't tolerate heretics, and they, they engage in church discipline. In fact, they, he did not tolerate carnal church members. You notice that there? He says, you cannot bear those who are evil. You cannot bear those who are evil. What's he talking about? That phrase called church discipline. The reformers back in the Reformation days used to say there were three marks of a church that made it a true church. The right preaching of God's word, the right baptism and Lord's Supper, the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper, and finally, that a church practices church discipline. Do you know that most churches today probably get number one right, right teaching, probably get the Lord's Supper and baptism right, but do you know where most churches fail if those are tests of, of true church? Church discipline. Well, pastor, it's not loving to remove a member from the membership roles, is it? Well, ask a parent if it's loving to discipline their child and just let them run amok and go, hey, kid at 14 years old, here's a cell phone and a credit card. Have fun. Go, go have fun. And if you've done that before, say amen. And it's silent as crickets except for Jimmy, uh, 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 Andy Griffith, whoever, whoever had that. Thank you. That yeah, that took us back a few years, didn't it? But nobody ever says to a child or to someone who's in trouble, just go do what you want. And that's why he's telling them they did not, they had sound doctrine. They believe what Matthew 18 said. If you have a problem with someone, you go one-to-one -one with them. If that problem can't be solved, you take two or three with you and you go before them. If you can't solve it there, you take it before the church. And if that sin has not been corrected, then you remove them from the church. They took that seriously. But so many churches are okay as long as you attend, serve, and give. And the golden verse of American Christianity is Matthew 7.1. You know it, don't you? Judge not, lest you be judged. We twist that verse to mean that as long as they have the right uh, testimony that I came to Jesus, we should not question their lifestyle. That's not what Jesus praised this church for. He said, they, you know those who are evil and you don't tolerate them. If you look down at verse 6 of chapter 2, you see that phrase there if you have your Bible. Chapter 2, verse 6, he mentions another group of them that he did not tolerate, the Nicolaitans or Nicolaitians. I won't go into that. There's a blog on our website for details why we wrote that this week. But he said that, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, can't say it well, which I also hate. Wait, Jesus doesn't hate. Well, it says he hates the works of these people. What did they do? They taught that you could say, I believe in Jesus and go live like a hellion are bad out of hell with no consequences. And Southern Baptist friends, Christian friends, lest we forget that we have grown up in a denomination that promoted that to the hilt. Oh, I see that hand. Oh, you want to come to Jesus? Close your eyes. Everybody get quiet. Pray this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you rose from the dead. And like a parrot, we have raised a generation or two of people who were taught 
that if they prayed some magical, incantational, heaven password-like prayer called the sinner's prayer, that they're going to heaven. And they go out that door never to be seen again. They stay on a church roll, and their lives are no different than anyone else out there. The sinner's prayer has condemned more people to hell than evangelism or lack thereof ever has. Be very careful. Counterfeit members are a real thing. And that's why this church, if you want to be a member, we don't have such high things that no one can get in, but we want to know that you really know Jesus Christ. Because doesn't that sound obvious? If you want to be in a church, you should actually know Jesus. But at a lot of churches, if you want to join the church, you just walk down the aisle. Hey, here comes Brother Bob. He's going to join the church today. Who is Brother Bob? When did he come to Jesus? Has he ever been baptized? Is he just doing this because his mommy wanted him to? That may step on your toes as it stepped on my history and my toes, but you need to know this church at Ephesus took their salvation stories seriously. But they also took counterfeit ministers seriously as well. They not only kicked out those who were not of Christ, but they kicked out those who were false apostles. In Revelation 2.2, he says, he says, I know how you tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. When an apostle showed up, they listened like the Bereans in Acts 17 to what was being said. And so many people get so caught up in what the style of the preacher is instead of what the subject of what the preacher is. That's why that smiley preacher, and I will call his name out, and I want you to know this. I don't do this pridefully. And you have every right and reign to call me out if I'm off base too. That's why Joel Osteen gets so many people riled up because he has, he is a great presenter. He can smile with the best. He can hug with the best. He accentuates his voice when he should, and he gets soft when he gets. He ropes people in. But this church did not stand for counterfeit people. Smiley preachers from Houston, Texas. They tested everything that was said by what they were taught by that long line of godly people who stood in their midst. And I praise God that this church, through its many ups and downs, has had godly people who stood for godly things when it mattered most. And unlike today, where many churches tolerate anything, this Ephesian church would not allow beliefs or morals to be corrupted by heretical teaching. You say, Darren, don't we all just believe the same things? No, we don't. And the Bible never suggests that either. There's a popular phrase around today that if you're a Christian, you pray to the same God as Muslims, and Muslims pray to the same God as Christians. Oh, Lord help us. Be very careful. We need moral integrity. We need doctrinal conviction. We need spiritual courage. But we also need to test the very things that we hear. Notice also he praises them here for their diligence. Look at verse 3. He says, I know you've been patiently enduring. I know that you have been bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. What he's saying to them is, I know why that you are suffering. And I know that you have stood fast. You've been persecuted, ridiculed, and maligned. But don't give up. Jesus said in Matthew 5, he said, Blessed are those when others revile you and persecute you, and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were also before you. This ought to give us a couple lessons. And Amy, just for sake of time, if you want to put those two up, please. How Jesus counsels this church and commends this church ought to be lessons for us as well. If you're a Christian here today, can I just tell you that Jesus is not a policeman with a siren on the top of his car trying to pull you over. You say, how do you know that? Because, and, and Annie and Jeff, I thought of you guys, I had you in my notes anyway. There's probably other gardeners here, but I think of my green thumb experts that come through here. 
What's a gardener do? A gardener goes through and prunes and, and corrects, and if they see mildew or insects or, or weird growth going on, what the, what's a gardener do? A gardener tries their best to weed it out, to, to, to fix it so that the plant can grow and sprout and, and, be, and, and be harvested and plentiful. Jesus is not a policeman. He does not need to go around and say, woo, 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 woo. Tower View Baptist Church, there's a $100 speeding ticket for letting in false members and not kicking out those who are teaching false things. Friends, we need to be diligent in those things. But he also reminds us here that because we are secure fully in Christ, all the wrath of God has already been satisfied. But he will come by his spirit, John 15, and prune us as necessary. But he's a gardener, not a policeman. But this is also a word about how we treat each other. Did you notice that he goes before these people, and as he tells them and talks about them, he says that he's assessing them and affirming them, but he, he sandwiches it with a positive before he gets to the negative? Isn't that so great? So often when we go to someone and we see sin in their lives, we just go straight for the sin. But why don't we emphasize the positive first, what God has done in their life? How we treat each other is shown by how Christ treated the church at Ephesus. You can say, I love you as my brother or sister in Christ. I see the God's grace in you. But brother or sister, I also see this in your life. And I pray that you'll hear what I have to say. In the spirit, Christ came. But he's going to get to the heart of the matter. He's going to put his hand in the vein and it's going to hurt. He's going to pull the tooth without any injections to make sure that tooth doesn't hurt. Will you look at verse 4? And this is number 3. He commended the heartless church. But number 3, the risen Jesus also criticizes the heartless church. Verse 4. He says, but I have this against you. That ought to perk your ears. That you have abandoned the love that you had at first. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Can Jesus hate? Yes. Notice he hated, verse 6, the, the works, not the people of the Nicolaitans. But he says this, I also have this against you. And the, there are three verses of praise, but here also is a verse of challenge. And Jesus declares, you have abandoned your first love. In other words, for all their zeal, for all their work like a, a beehive or an ant colony, for, for, for reaching the city of Ephesus, they were doing it without a heart for it. There was a people and a place that loved Jesus, but they lost their first love. This church was no longer captivated or motivated what Jesus did for them. They did all the right things. They checked the box. They came to service. They went to Sunday school. They went to prayer meeting. They gave to Lottie Moon, Annie Armstrong. They were, if they were Baptists, then they weren't, but if they were Baptists to Baptists, they were, they, they just did it all. But their heart was not in it. That first love is what we most long to capture. What is he saying? They have lost their first love. They forgot what it was to be saved. Can I have you think back, Christian, to the time and place you were when you became a Christian? Do you remember that time? For some of you, that's been a few minutes, hasn't it? For a lot of you, that's just been a few years. But you remember what it was like when you came to Jesus. They couldn't put enough water on you to douse out your passion for Jesus. You told everyone about Jesus. You maybe even had someone call you along and say, hey, got to calm down a little bit, son or, or, or daughter. You're talking about Jesus too much. And when a church does that, it's probably a good reason to, well, you need to love them where they are. But you might need to find another place eventually. You remember those days. And love springs up when we embrace Christ and he, he, he saves us and he brings us to that point. 
Samuel Rutherford said it this way, if you saw Christ standing on a shore far distant away, holding out his arms to welcome you on, it, on land, you would not only wade through the sea of all your wrongs, but you would wade through hell itself to be on that shore with him. And that's what it's like when you come to Jesus, isn't it? First love moves us to say with the song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I think that's on my ring, isn't it? Somewhere here, my wife is reminding me of that. But with this love, it's easy to pray. In a time of first love, we can't wait to get into the secret place, so to speak. But this complaint he has is serious. Why? Four reasons, and you'll have those on your notes. Number one, this complaint is serious. Well, because Jesus is the one who's complaining. Wait, Jesus doesn't complain, does he? Well, he does against the people that should know better. I pray that when we men or uh, those who will be married someday, we truly love our wives. I mean, how terrible would it be if we said to our spouses, I sense that my love for you has faded away. I no longer love you. But I'm going to stay around. I'll, I'll sleep in the same bed with you. I'll fulfill my marital duties and obligations. I'll provide for you. But I don't love you anymore. We accept that as a matter of course that that can happen in people's lives, but he's complaining to them because that's really where they are. Their heart for the Lord has gone away. It's a serious complaint because Jesus, the one who knows their heart, is complaining. Number two, this complaining and this fading love is because you can't hide your love from Jesus. Your fading love cannot hide from Jesus. You may not be aware of it, and others may not see it, and you may be in a habit of just going through the motions of your heart being far from Christ and the people of Christ and the cause of Christ, but Christ knows it, and he sees it. Verse 2, the Lord Jesus knows the very day and hour when your love began to fade. And you may not acknowledge it even when you know it's true. You may say the right words, smile, hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll pray for you. But you know in your hard heart you don't want to pray for them because you don't love Jesus to pray for them. It happens. And it can happen to any of us, including pastors, because this book can become a means to a job and end a paycheck. There I said it. But you're the pastor. That would never happen. Yep, it happens. Be very careful. Even David, the man after God's own heart, grew cold to the things of God. Number three, it's a serious complaint, and it's a serious thing because the relationship to Christ is at stake. The relationship of the church's relationship of Christ is at stake. If you go down to verse 4 and down to verse 5, you'll notice what he says. He says, remember, therefore, from where, verse 5, remember where you have fallen, repent, and do the works of come. You did it first. But if not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What's he saying to them? He's not saying that they'll lose their salvation. We know that we're wrapped up in Christ. There's not, we, we didn't earn our salvation. MacArthur has said, John MacArthur, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But we don't gain it. We're given it by grace and grace alone, by faith and faith alone. But what he's saying is, is that this church will cease to exist unless you get your heart in the right place. And finally... This is a serious complaint because it's a love's complaint, or it's love's complaint. We are sinning against the very one who showed us the greatest love. The one who has the greatest love, capital L, Christ himself, is complaining, and that love has separated them. Let me just put this in perspective for you again. This church is a beehive of activity. They guarded this pulpit. They despised evildoers, false members, false teachers. They persevered in a culture that was not good to them. They kept their doors open. They met. They, we know historically they took in the, the, the poor and needy. They were sound in their doctrine. 
but they left, forsook, and abandoned their first love. Oh, how easily that can be. If you've been in love, you know what love is like, don't you? It's that honeymoon love. It's all the feelings. You go out together, you talk all the time, you do everything together, you do whatever it takes to make them smile. But then you get married, and even in marriage, romances can start to become routine. The fire that consumed the romances become a freeze over that it becomes. How did this happen? Did it just happen suddenly? No. It happened gradually. So this morning, I just want to encourage you, if you're here as a Christian, would you pray this week? God, where is my heart before you? And God, where is our church's heart before you? Can I say it again? You can listen to sermons. You can read books. You can do this. You can do that. But if your heart is not in it, you've missed it. Isn't this what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? You can prophesy. You can serve. But if we have not love, you're like a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Be careful. Be very, very careful. Last thing I want you to see as we close out today, he not only commends, he not only uh, criticizes, and he not only does those things, but he also reminds us here at number four, and we'll get to this in, at the very end. He reminds us that at number four, that he is the one that corrects the heartless church. He corrects it. We look at verse five, he corrects the heartless church. He says, and we read this just a minute ago, he said, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand in its place unless you repent. This is exactly what he says. He says, first off, remember. He tells us to remember. How do you restore your love? You remember. And in that remembering, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, said it this way. He says, profitable for Christians to be often calling to mind the very beginnings when they came to believe by grace for their souls. It is. What is he remembering? You're remembering what the Lord has done for you in salvation. That's why if you're visiting at this church or you're a longtime member, we want to emphasize what Jesus has done for us. Because the moment we lose that is the moment we go into Ephesus territory in our heart of hearts. The church at Ephesus had fallen from the heights of devotion to Christ. And there are times, yes, our kids love this story. There are times when looking back is bad. Do you remember Lot's wife? Lot was told not to look back at the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and, and his wife did what? And she got immortalized as a pillar of salt forevermore. And all the dogs came and licked it up. No, I, we don't know what happened to her. But we imagine that many thirsty, no, we'll just, we'll just let it be. But Luke 17, 32 says, remember Lot's wife. There is a point in your Christian life, if you want to be restored to where your heart desires Christ, you have to remember from whence you came. Remember what it was like when grace gripped you. Remember the moment you were saved. Remember that Jesus said again and again and again that where your heart is, there your treasure is also. Is your treasure, is your heart treasuring Christ or is it treasuring the things of Christ or the things of this world? You know, perhaps you carry a picture with you of your kids when they were younger, your grandkids, and you ask those questions. Who does he look like? Mom, dad, grandma, aunt, uncle, whatever. And you hadn't noticed a resemblance to a family member before when you pick up that same picture again and you say, no, actually, they look like this person in the family. That's how it is with us spiritually. We can see ourselves regularly so much that we cannot be objective about our looks. James 1 tells us that. We can look in the mirror and not even know. 
But we need to recall the prayers we prayed, the vows we made, the closeness we felt. You need to remember that passion, how easy it is to slip into a church and out of a church without knowing Christ and having your heart far from Him. So think about it. God will restore you. But he says secondly here, not only remember, but he says to number two, repent, to repent. What is repentance? Repentance is a lot of things. It's a changing of a mind. It's a U-turn in your life. It's acknowledging uh, uh, your way is wrong and God's way is correct. But repentance is four things. And John Moody, I was trying to find, this is what I was trying to find when I ran out to my car yesterday because we were talking about this very thing uh, at, the, at the lunch after the funeral. And biblical repentance is four things. You ready for this? What does it mean to repent? Well, here's four things from those old dead guys, the reformers. First off, is biblical repentance grieves over and hates sin. I know our mamas and daddies taught us well. If we don't have anything good to say, we shouldn't say the word hate. We should say the word dislike. But the Bible uses it very intentionally and strongly when it refers to sin. Just as Jesus did when he said, I hate the Nicolaitans in verse 6 of chapter 2. It is okay for you to sorrow over your sin with God. That's exactly what Nelson read earlier from Psalm 51. David hated his sin so much that he had to come to the point that he saw it for what it was. But sin in repentance is also a confession of specific sins. Not the, just the generic thing. God, I know I did something wrong today, but I don't remember what it was. Please forgive me. Oh, you know what it was. Stop it. Just like when parents, uh, we were kind of talking about this in our family last night, times when kids get in trouble and you try and pull out what exactly happened to get that thing broken or other things and no one gives you a straight story. But you know someone in there did something specific to break that lamp or to break that door or whatever. Be specific. David was. If you want to restore your heart for God, you need to be specific about what took you away from God. Say, I don't know what that is. I pray about it and God will make it known to you. He easily will. Two more things on that. Biblical repentance also forsakes sin. Forsakes sin. It runs away from it. If you're struggling with looking at images on the internet you should not look at, then throw away your computer and smartphone and get one of those dumb flip phones that doesn't have internet. If you struggle with gluttony, <laughs> you better co cover your ears every time we talk about potlucks and CC's Pizza. Don't go there. I mean, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? If you know what your sin is, pray for the heart to fight it. It's not just as easy as I'm not just going to do it. There's a lot of steps in between, but, but take the safeguards necessary within the body of Christ, first with your relationship with accountability partners, with other people to forsake it. Far more than emotion, it's often an act of will by God's grace. And finally, cry for mercy. Biblical repentance cries for mercy. He was telling them, what Psalm 51 verses 1, 9, and 17 is, is that you're a wretched sinner and the only thing that can save you is Christ himself. So remember, repent, and we'll close with this. Truly, said the pastor, and then he went on for another 30 minutes. In closing, you also repeat. What do you repeat? He says at verse 5, he says, remember, repent, and what are you supposed to repeat? He says, do the works you did first. Whoa, 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 whoa. Pastor, we're not saved by works, right? There's nothing good in us. There's nothing we can do good to get to heaven, right? That's what we always preach. Yes, amen. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's saying is, is exactly what is on the screen. Go back to the basics of the Christian life. 
if you have fallen away from your love for Christ, even if you're busy doing the things of Christ, pray, read the Bible, worship, fellowship, serve, give, and witness. As a youth pastor of many years, I often had parents say, Johnny got in trouble at school. He's not going to be allowed to come to church. It's exactly where he needs to be. Now, there's a, there's a conversation there about the fun activities you do and all those things. Look, it's not just that you show up, you're going to be more spiritual. It's not what we're implying or saying. But there is something about being among God's people that imparts to you by God's grace spiritual strength when you see other people walking the same walk that they're supposed to walk. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Be imitators of me. The author of Hebrews said, do as I do. It's easier to act in a way into feeling than to feel your way into action. But do whatever it takes to get closer to the Lord. This is not about the second coming. This isn't about charts and, and, and puzzle pieces and headlines. It's about a special coming to the church of Ephesus. That's why he said, I'm going to remove your lampstand. But notice as we close, and I truly mean this, verse 7. Notice what he says at the end. Look at verse 7. He says, he who has an ear, what? Let him hear. Jesus' uh, advice to all parents and all leaders everywhere. What the Spirit says of the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amy, if it's possible, I did not put this at the end. If you could go back to that temple picture that we had at the start, I want to make a clear observation about what's happening here. When he says the tree of life, he's going back. He's, he's going back to Genesis 3 and 2 where there was a tree of life. And you may not be able to see it here, but kind of right up front here, there's a big old tree. They had a tree at the very front that if you were not pregnant as a lady, you could go and take off the palm branches of that tree. And the thought was, is that if you rubbed it on you enough and, and got it on you enough, that somehow you would get pregnant when that time came to do so. The tree of life for the city of Ephesus was at the temple of Diana. And what God is saying to his church is, your tree of life is not here on this world. It is in heaven, and your reward is in heaven. And if you stay faithful, you will be blessed forever and ever and ever with the one who is in heaven, who holds the tree of life, which is eternal life, the forgiveness of your sins. Don't lose your first love. And that's what he tells him. If you want to see Ephesus, it is still there. But I pray with all our might that our church is known to be a beehive of activities for all the right reasons but our prayer is that our heart is in it as well husband mom dad grandma grandpa child that goes for you too and we pray that is the clear truth of the gospel we pray with me as we close out today thank you father as we look at this first church and what an honest assessment it is to know that this church was praised for all the reasons they were commended that they were counseled they were criticized but father lastly they were given that great truth of the correction that comes from your hand father we thank you that you do correct us we know from hebrews even a few months ago hebrews 12 that we know that you discipline those with whom you love and if there's no spiritual discipline divine discipline in our lives to bring conviction to our hearts of sin then it's perhaps true that we never knew you so father as we close today and uh Father, it's been a, uh, a tough week at church with the loss of one of our own and uh, we, we, uh, with so many other things going on this summer at the church and preparing for all the big events that are ahead this month and next. We just want to stop and remember, repent, and reflect on what it is to know you. 
So, Father, I would encourage, and I pray you encourage us with this truth that, Lord, each of us would go back to the first love we had, to remember what it is that we loved Christ. Maybe we've grown and should have grown in our doctrine and devotion to you, Father, and all those great things. But may the simple flicker that is there that we love you just grow in an ever-growing flame spiritually in our lives, that we would come to know you more, love you more, confess you more, share you more, and just worship you for who you are more and more. Father, forgive our church if we have just been a beehive of activity without the heart. And equally, Lord, forgive us if we've been so heart-led that we've not stood true to the facts and truths of the gospel. May we have both in abundance to your glory and for our good. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.